Welcome to the In All Things podcast. Here, we talk about everything from friendship and personalities to contentment and faith. Our goal, to encourage you to seek Christ in all things. Hey, how's it going? I'm your host, Sierra. Let's imagine you're in my living room and dive into real conversation. Hey, friends. I have been on a roll with these hot topics lately. Uh, Biblical marriage guest episodes submission, feminism, and today we're going to talk about biblical womanhood. So I hope you have enjoyed these conversations as much as I have. Um, Biblical womanhood does relate to feminism because feminism is kind of how society today views women, and biblical womanhood is how God views women. And these two perspectives are very different And if you were actually to ask me which is more oppressing, I would say it's the feminist movement, which is going to be completely opposite of what we'd hear a lot of people say right now. Society gets this skewed. Society believes that God has this oppressive view of women and loves us second to men. God's perspective is that he created men and women equal, loves us equally, and wants the best for all of us. God has such a high view of women. From the beginning of time, though, people have misunderstood or misinterpreted what God says. They are either offended by what God says and deliberately go against it, or they take what God says too far, sometimes maybe with the intent of honoring him, but it's now still not aligned with God's heart if it's taken too far. What I really want to do in this episode is I wanted to highlight different women in the Bible and how they are examples of the high view that God has of women. A good place to start would be the, the first woman created, Eve. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This verse shows us right off the bat that men and women are created equally. We were both created in his image, and that is huge. Nothing else in creation was created in the image of God, not plants or the ocean or any of the animals. It was men and women. And I think that says an awful lot about our value as women. And in Genesis 2, we see an account of the creation of the earth. And after God created Adam, he said he wanted to find Adam a helper. Now, that is the word that's used in this passage. And I think a lot of the time, women kind of get bent out of shape about that word because we see it as being like subservient to somebody else. But first of all, I think it's worth noting that basically God was like, oh, I'm not done yet. Men aren't enough, (laughs) right? He wanted something else for his creation. But you know who else was described as a helper? The Holy Spirit was. Now, I'm not going to insinuate that women are equal to the Holy Spirit because that would be too far. But the same word is used to describe us. What it does mean is that just as the Holy Spirit, as a helper, is not subpar in the Trinity, women are not subpar to men in a relationship either or in society. 
I think we would have to have a pretty low view of God to believe that he would create women to only be the lesser sex, to be controlled, to be stuck in society as humans that have no dreams and no rights in society. No way. We talked about this in the last couple episodes, both in submission and feminism, but God created men and women with equal value, but different roles in his kingdom and therefore in society. You may be familiar with the story in Joshua about Rahab. So in the story, Joshua was leading the Israelites and he was wanting to conquer Jericho. So he first sent out some spies to the land to scout it out. And then the king of Jericho found out and he wanted those spies killed, of course. But Rahab ended up taking them in and hiding them. Rahab was not an Israelite, but she agreed to help them if they would help her and her family escape from the battle that was going to be coming. The thing about Rahab is that she was a prostitute. So obviously not really living in the way of the Lord. However, she helped the Israelite spies and was pretty instrumental in their conquest. And in the end, Rahab and her family were the only ones who were spared in that battle. And not only that, but ultimately, Rahab married Salmon, who was an Israelite, and her son was Boaz, who eventually married Ruth. And if you follow that lineage, many, many generations later, Joseph, the father of Jesus, is her direct descendant. I love this story so much because we see this woman who is living in sin just as we all are. It doesn't say that she used to be a prostitute. The passage introduces her as a prostitute. And she helped God's people. And this woman, despite her sinfulness, showed God faithfulness. And then was in the direct lineage of Jesus. If God was this overbearing patriarch, it would have been only righteous men in Jesus' lineage. The women wouldn't have had any names for themselves. That is clearly not the case here. And also, this is applicable for everyone. Isn't it amazing that God not only forgives our sins, but can move us into a place of honor from there? And that place of honor may never be in our lifetime. So it is important to remember that. But just think, Rahab never knew who her descendants would be. No one ever does. But nevertheless, her faithfulness resulted in being directly related to our Savior. I then think of the woman at the well, a story that we can learn so much from. We find this passage in John 4, so I won't read the whole passage, but I'll read a few verses starting in 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? who gave us the well and drink from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock. 
Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Their conversation continues, but I want to point out a few things from this story. First of all, and this is actually mentioned right in the verses, Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Like, the Jews hated the Samaritan people. We can't describe this enough. In, in their day, that was the racism that was happening. They did not associate with each other. But Jesus went into Samaria anyway, and he approached this woman at the well. And she called him out on it too. Why are you asking me for a drink? You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. And second, we can also notice that this woman was alone. Back in the biblical times, drawing water at the well um, as she was doing was like this social event. It was a time to catch up with friends. And most likely it happened early in the morning or in the evening to miss the hottest part of the day. A well wasn't necessarily really close to a town, so it would have been a long walk with a heavy load for women to do. And this was the woman's task. So we see that this woman is alone. And we know from another verse prior to the passage that I read that it's about noon. So the hottest part of the day. This lady has been ostracized by other women, and we find out why later in the passage. We learn that she has had five husbands, and the man that she lives with now is actually not her husband. We have to look at the context here, because in the time that this story takes place, adultery is a huge deal. Huge. And the punishment could have been as serious as being stoned to death. So for this Samaritan woman, it meant being a complete social outcast. She had no one to fetch water with, and she most likely didn't have any friends at all. But again, Jesus spoke to her anyway. He treated her as a human. He spoke to her with love, and he offered her eternal life. She was doubtful at first, but the more he spoke to her, the more he, she realized who he was. How can anyone look at this story and say that God doesn't care about women? In that culture, he would have been like justified, per se, to ignore her and pass her over. But he did not do that. He sat there and he struck up a conversation and extended her the greatest gift of all. There's another similar story in John 8, and it's a little shorter than this one, but it's where a woman is about to get stoned to death because she's been caught in adultery. And the Pharisees, which who were the religious leaders at the time, came to Jesus hoping that he would condemn her and sentence her to death. But Jesus' response was one that you might be familiar with. He said, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And the Pharisees all walked away, and Jesus said, go now and leave your life of sin. He did not condemn her. And again, he would have, according to society, been justified to condemn her in that moment. But he forgave her and he extended her eternal life. The last biblical example that I want to pay close attention to is from Luke um, chapter 8. It says, after this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. 
The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household, and Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. If God or Jesus had a low esteem of women, do you really think that they would have been allowed to help fund Jesus' ministry or that they'd even want to? These women were healed by Jesus, and then they used their own money to support his ministry. That's amazing. Not only were they supporting the ministry, but they traveled with Jesus and his 12 disciples. I think that says so much. These godly women would not have traveled with Jesus, would not have supported his ministry if they felt degraded by him and the other men. Not at all. Those really are just a few examples of the women that we see in the Bible who are looked at with great value by the Lord. Last week, we talked about feminism, and one huge push in feminism is that women don't want to be at home with families. They want to be in the workplace. They want that equality with men and earning a living. Um, A lot of very conservative Christians don't believe that women belong in the workforce, that they should be at home. And regarding this topic, I want to look at Proverbs 31. This passage is what many women look to when they want to know what a godly woman looks like. And a lot of men look to it to figure out what kind of woman that they want to marry. It's a description of a woman who lives a godly and honorable life. And we actually end up seeing quite a bit of detail about her life in these verses. But when it comes to my main point here about working and home life, I wanted to read a few different verses, but just note that they're not necessarily like consecutive in the passage. I just picked um, some that are specific about working and home life. It says, she selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. She gets up while it is still night. She provides for her family and portions for her female servants. She considers a field and buys it. Out of her own earnings, she plants a vineyard. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her tasks. She sees that her trading is profitable. When it snows, she has no fear for her household, for all of them are clothed in scarlet. She makes linen garments and sells them, and supplies the merchants with sashes. She watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children arise and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. What do you notice? This woman, the one we still look to as an example of biblical womanhood, both provided for her family by nurturing them and staying at home and being that homemaker, and she was respected by her family, and she worked. And not only worked, but she worked outside the home sometimes. She buys a field and plants a vineyard, which when I think of that, I kind of think of that's kind of like what today's society would consider like the residual income, you know, maybe like a work from home mom situation. And this woman also works in the market selling the items that she makes. So here she's working outside the home. So we actually don't see God putting in place these rules that women can't work. Here's the beautiful thing. This is a freedom issue. 
meaning that we can be working moms, we can be stay-at-home moms, we can be work-from-home moms. And while I don't believe that this is the true for the majority of women, we don't have to be moms if we don't aren't called to that either. But I think that that is where feminism gets it wrong because they place so much emphasis on the workplace that then actual families and raising families and that home life is often neglected. My main point, though, is that God never put in place that women couldn't work. The next thing that I'm going to talk about here is something that we often hear as an argument that women are second to men, that we don't have the same rights as men biblically. But let's look at this. So in 1 Timothy chapter 2, we see Paul's letter to Timothy instructing women to be quiet in church and not to have authority over men. And in 1 Corinthians 14, we see another letter from Paul to the town of Corinth where he says women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Now, I'll be honest, on the surface, I can see where this can get misinterpreted because it does sound pretty harsh right off the bat. But let's look at some things. First, we have to understand the cultural context. Women in this time were not widely theologically educated. So we have to understand that it makes sense for a bunch of women who don't know theology to be quiet during a church service. And if we look at the rest of that passage, which I didn't read the whole thing, but it is important to note that Paul gives other instructions as well, all under the topic of maintaining good order in worship. That's kind of the heading of that Bible passage. He gives instructions for those who speak in tongues or those who prophesy, which would also need to be um, reined in, for lack of a better term, I guess, in certain occasions. The other thing that we can see is that Paul does say that women can ask questions at home. It was just a part of the culture that men were the ones who were more theologically educated. And Paul is saying that women can learn, but go learn from your husbands at home. Go learn from those who are theologically educated, but don't be asking questions and interrupting church. Essentially is what it was. And keep in mind that Paul was talking to a very specific group of people with their own struggles and needs. Not that that doesn't make it applicable to us, but in order to understand it a bit better, it is good to know. Because we also do see women who did lead in the church in other books of the Bible. Priscilla and Lydia, they hosted and supported and advised and Junia is named as an apostle of Christ. And the daughters of Philip prophesied. So Paul was n absolutely not saying that in every single circumstance that women should be silent. And like I said, this is one of the bigger points that people bring up is this issue of women speaking in church. And I know I didn't really deep dive into that topic, but, but my goal in this episode is to open our eyes on what God says about women and how much freedom we do have in his kingdom. 
We aren't chained to our homes and we're not muzzled in his kingdom. When we look at the Bible without our 21st century glasses that kind of tend to make us really offended, we can see how much we are empowered by the Lord. We were created for so much in his purpose. And I said this last week, God gives men and women different gifts to fulfill different purposes in his plan. Because if we go all the way back to Genesis, God didn't say, oh, yep, men are enough. I'm done. He needed the women there too. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Uh, Make sure that you stay tuned next week for our final episode in the guest series on marriage that we're doing. If you haven't listened to the two previous conversations on marriage, take this coming week to do that. Lindsay and Mike's was back in June, and in July we talked to Jared and Beth, and you do not want to miss those episodes, and you're really not going to want to miss this next one either. Um, It's been such a fun series to do, so make sure you stay tuned. Have a great weekend. Thank you for joining today's conversation. I hope this was an encouraging episode as you continue to walk with the Lord. If it was, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. This helps with the app's algorithm and allows In All Things to be accessible to even more people. Share with your friends and give us a follow on Instagram and Facebook. You can find us at In All Things Pod on both of those and visit our website at inallthingspodcast.com. See you next time.